Good morning. Today we continue in the series that we've called Voices. Last Sunday we had Travis Hess speaking. Uh, I'll speak today. Next Sunday, Friendship Community will be with us. Then Jeff returns, and then we have another special Sunday, um, the director of Love, Inc. And so we go on from there. We'll see what God has in store for us. I suppose we all have times in our lives when we question, does God love me? These thoughts may come especially after we've done something wrong. We may fall into the trap that we think the sin is too big or too serious or too damaging for God's mercy and forgiveness to cover. Today we want to look at David and his life and especially at God's love and mercy. When the name of David is mentioned, what's your first thought? How do you remember his life? For many, their first thought is about his victory over Goliath. Some remember his failure with Bathsheba. Others remember his anointing and call as a young man. Some dwell on his problems with Saul and Absalom. Some remember his friendship with Jonathan. We tend to remember the spectacular, the traumatic, and the glorious. However, when God remembers David, he remembers something quite different about him. Some 1,000 years after David's death, Paul reveals what God remembers about David. The passage is Acts 13.22. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill my will. Let's explore how God loved David through good times and bad. First, let me say that I stand before you not as an astute Bible scholar. In my preparation, I've skinned a skimmed the books of First and Second Samuel and some other authors. And if your understanding is different than what I'm sharing, I welcome discussion. We know there are 66 chapters in the Bible devoted to David's life. This is more chapters than anyone else except for Jesus himself. According to Alexander McLaren, Jesse's household seemed to be one which modern frugality ruled. There's no trace of Jesse having servants. His youngest child does menial work. The present which he sends to the king when David goes to court was simple, bread and a skin of wine. It would appear that prosperity had not smiled on the family since the days of his grandfather, Boaz. David's place in the household doesn't seem to be a happy one. I guess that's up for debate. His father scarcely reckoned him against his other sons and answers Samuel's question if the seven burly husbandmen he had seen are all his children. The trace of contempt, he remembers, there's another, but He's keeping the sheep. So it seems like David made good use of his time as he was out in the fields, 
with the sheep, we know that he played the lyre. Likely, he practiced marksmanship. And he faced challenging experiences of protecting the flock from predators. His early life taught him courage and helped him to conquer his fears. Solitude and familiarity with nature helped to nurture the poetical side of his character and strengthened his meditative habits. So it was that Samuel anointed him, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord gripped David. David was called to the palace to play soothing music for King Saul, who seems to have faced inner torment. Saul, who at one time had been a godly man, disobeyed Samuel's instructions and fell from favor. Now his kingdom was threatened. The Philistines were taunting his kingdom with a giant called Goliath. He was thought to be about 10 feet tall. Every day, for 40 days, he would call out for someone to fight. David wasn't afraid, but he went forth in the power of God and artfully used a small stone to kill Goliath. David and Saul's son, Jonathan, developed a deep friendship and looked out for each other. Because David was becoming very popular, Saul was feeling threatened and made plans for David to serve in the army for the purpose of having him killed. When that plan didn't work, Saul tried to kill him with his own spear, and David fled. David made a life for himself. He had numerous wives and children. After Saul died, there was another king briefly, and then David came to the throne. He reigned a total of 40 years, with the majority of the time over both Israel and Judah. At one point, he commanded 30,000 men. One of the happenings in David's life as king was his desire to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. It had been kept in a tent and David thought the presence of God deserved better. In the moving process, a man touched the ark to steady it and died instantly. David sought God and learned how to proceed with moving the ark by offering a series of sacrifices. David ruled as a just king. He provided care for the crippled son of Jonathan, and he returned land to its rightful owner. But then, perhaps it was the power, perhaps David wasn't paying attention to his soul, perhaps there was another reason, but David lusted for Bathsheba. She became pregnant, and David devised a plan to make it look like it was her husband's child. That didn't work, and he had the husband killed in the line of duty. Sometime later, the prophet Nathan exposed David's sin and proclaimed that the sword would not depart from David's house evermore. He said that there would be evil among his family and fellow man. One translation says, I will cause those from your own family to bring trouble on you. David acknowledged his sin, but that didn't change the consequences. The child he bore with Bathsheba became sick and died. 
He had married her following the death of her husband, and she bore him more children, one of which was Solomon. The tragedy continues in the family. His son, Amnon, raped Tamar, a half-sister. Another son, Absalom, was infuriated and tried to protect Tamar. There was more manipulation and deceit, and ultimately, Absalom died in a freak accident. David's desire to build the temple went unfulfilled. At the end of his life, David affirmed that he had made things right with God. Even in his sin, he would turn back to God and be restored. And we can learn from David that we don't need to stay stuck with the weight of sin. Let's look at Psalm 51. Some scholars believe that David wrote this psalm after Nathan confronted him. It expresses one of the clearest examples of repentance in all of Scripture. <clears throat> Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear your joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You might want to turn to your bulletin in the next section. There's a, a place where you can fill in some of the, the blanks. In the psalm, Psalm 51, we see that David's heart is broken. He acknowledges his sin and longs to be restored in right relationship with God. Chuck Swindoll says, When there is true repentance, there will be open, unguarded admission. When Nathan confronts David, he says, I have sinned against God and God only. I have sinned and done evil. We need to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. When there is true repentance, there's a 
desire to make a complete break from sin. Repentance is turning around and going in the opposite direction, making a complete break with what has been. We want to be rid of the sin and walk away. When there is true repentance, the spirit is broken and humble. A contrite heart makes no demands and has no expectations. When there's absolute repentance resulting in a broken and humble heart, emotions overflow. That is part of the cleansing. True repentance is claiming God's forgiveness and reinstatement. The work of purging, of confrontation, is the most severe work of the Holy Spirit. Either our lives are clean or they're dirty. When we repent, God promises us restitution and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He does not promise relief from any and all consequences, but he promises a relief that only the Holy Spirit can give. I'd like to challenge us today in our repentance and forgiveness. If God has forgiven us, we need to forgive each other. We pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive one another. We can learn to cultivate a forgiving spirit. One step is to determine not to take offense. We can pray for patience and understanding. We can try to see where the other person is coming from. Putting ourselves in the other person's shoes can go a long way in keeping peace. It's helpful if we remember times in our own life when we have needed forgiveness. We all fail, but we need to, try to keep trying to be authentic and not put ourselves above other people. And we need to say we're sorry. If we just think it, how does that restore relationship with each other? Cultivating a forgiving spirit is possible with God's help. The story is told of John D. Rockefeller, who built the Standard Oil Empire. He was known as a man who demanded high performance from his company executives. Then one day, one of those executives made a $2 million mistake. Word of the man's enormous error quickly spread throughout the executive offices, and the other men began to make themselves scarce. Afraid of Rockefeller's reaction, they didn't want to cross his path. One man didn't have any choice, however, since he had an appointment with the boss. So he straightened his shoulders and tightened his belt and walked into Rockefeller's office. As he approached the oil monarch's desk, Rockefeller looked up from the piece of paper upon which he was writing. I guess you've heard about the $2 million mistake our friend made, he said abruptly. Yes, said the executive, expecting Rockefeller to explode. Well, I've been sitting here listing all of our friend's good qualities on this sheet of paper, and I discovered that in the past, he has made us many more times the amount he lost for us today by his one mistake. His good points far outweigh this one human error. So I think we ought to forgive him, don't you?
God's supply of love and mercy is endless. The forgiveness we can know is beyond compare. Is your heart broken before God? Are you offering a spirit of forgiveness to others? Can we confirm within ourselves that with God's help, we can learn to cultivate a forgiving spirit? God is waiting for us to receive his love so we can be empowered to share that with others. Team.